In the name of God, the world maker, God, the pain bearer, God, the giver of life, amen. I want to thank Dean Churchwell and all of you uh, for the honor of being with you today. Um, you know, to everybody in the Episcopal Church in Oklahoma, this cathedral is a very special place, and it certainly is to me. Uh, I was ordained to the transitional diaconate right over there in 1978. Well, Trinity Sunday. Uh, one of my seminary professors said the best place for the rector to be on Trinity Sunday is to be lustily singing holy, holy, holy while the guest preacher steps into the pulpit. <laughs> and um, the problem with preaching on Trinity Sunday is you have to sort of steer a path between being too simplistic and being too theological and technical so that either people go away with wrong ideas or you put them to sleep while you're explaining all of these complex theories about the relationship among the persons of the Trinity. But anyway, here we are. I'd like to begin uh, by mentioning to you the places in the New Testament where the doctrine of the Trinity is discussed. Did you get that? like me to go over it again so you can take notes? <laughs> now, of course, as we all know, uh, we hear about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in many times in the New Testament, especially in the Gospel of John, which we have heard this morning. There's a lot of discussion of the relationship between the Father and the Son and the sending of the Holy Spirit and so forth. But the actual evolved doctrine of the Trinity really is not to be found in the New Testament. Now, I learned a long time ago a certain narrative about the history of Christianity. Learned it in Sunday school, learned it in confirmation class, learned it in seminary. And it goes like this. Right before he ascended to heaven, Jesus gave authority to the apostles to go out into the world to proclaim the gospel, and that is exactly what they did. They spread through the cities of the Roman Empire and beyond, and as they went from one place to another, they left behind them in all of these different communities these male authority figures called bishops. And what their job was was to see that that gospel continued to be preached for all eternity. And this initiated what was called the apostolic succession, that there has been an unbroken line of bishops proclaiming this same gospel as the apostles since the very beginning. Now, from time to time, these people arose who were called heretics. Um, some of them were well-meaning but misguided. Some of them were actually evil. But fortunately, these bishops were right on the job to make sure that those folks were not allowed to distort the true meaning of apostolic Christianity. 
Well, this was protected down through the ages, you know, with a few different turns here and there. And finally coming down to our own day, where the fullest expression of apostolic Christianity is to be found in the Episcopal Church of the United States of America. <laughs> My seminary had this lovely stone carving on the outside of the library, uh, possibly to remind you to do your Greek homework. Uh, it said, hey, papax, hapax paradothetai tois hagiois pistis, the faith once delivered to the saints. A quotation, by the way, from the New Testament book of Jude. Well, more recent scholarship suggests that the early years in which the followers of Jesus the Anointed One were forming their communities were actually quite a bit more complicated than that. There was a lot of diversity. There were many different ideas about the relationship with God and who Jesus was and what the leadership of these communities should be. Different ideas of gender roles and of family. So there were dozens, if not hundreds, of different expressions of Christianity. Um, we see a few of them, one even in the New Testament itself. Um, in the first letter of Timothy, there's that famous passage about how uh, women should not teach in the churches or hold authority over men. You read that one, did you not, Dean Churchwell? Yes, sir. Okay, glad to hear it. Now, why exactly would the author of First Timothy have had to mention that unless that exact thing was going on in the community he was writing to? You don't tell people not to do something that they're not doing. Um, the, the standard narrative says that very early the church recognized that the books of the New Testament were the inspired word of God, but again, the story is much more complex than that. There were many, many, many writings that were considered sacred and authoritative in one community or another. Uh, one of them is very interesting, again, if we're talking about these male authority figures. It's called the Gospel of Mary. Mary, presumably Mary Magdalene, because this takes place shortly after the resurrection, um, has a conversation with one who is simply named as the Savior, who tells her that she must go to his apostles and tell them that they can have courage to go out and do what they have been called to do. The apostles at this point are terrified. They are saying to themselves, look what happened to Jesus. What are they going to do to us? But Mary comes with this authoritative word from the Savior to tell them that they should have courage and that Jesus will continue to live and be with them as they go about their calling. A Roman governor wrote to the emperor wondering what to do about these people called Christians at some point in the second century AD. He wasn't sure if they were just harmless cranks or if they were dangerous subversives. And he explains to the governor what he had done so far at that point. He had arrested and interrogated two leaders of their community 
to find out exactly what these people were up to. And the two leaders of the community that he had arrested were in fact not male authority figures, but they were women, and enslaved women at that. Now, when we finally get to the fourth century AD, the 300s, things have kind of calmed down in some ways for the church. They are uh, experiencing a period of peace, of freedom from persecution, and, in fact, of considerable political power. So, they decided now is the time to really define and nail down what we believe about God, about the nature of Jesus, and other issues as well. So they held these great councils of the undivided church, as they said in the narrative that I learned, um, where they tried to figure out how to approach the mystery of God. Now the tools they had to work with at that time were the tenets of Neoplatonic philosophy. Neoplatonic philosophy described the world as being made of, of what they called substance and accidents. Substances were the things that were common to a set of things in this world. For example, these over here are chairs. The big one with the seal of the diocese over there is a chair. The places that you sit at your dining room table are chairs. The folding chair that you take out when you go on a picnic is a chair. They all look very different, but their substance is the same. They are of chairness, you might say. Now, what is different about them is what they call the accidents, and that doesn't mean when the guy runs the stop sign and hits you from the side. Accidents are the things that we can sense with our human senses. We can see the appearance of something. We can feel what it feels like. Uh, perhaps we can even smell and taste and hear something of it. Those are the things that vary from one substance to another. So, um, those guys were trying to figure out how do we speak about God in this Neoplatonic world? Well, what, are the subs what is the substance of God? And they spent a long time trying to figure that out. They made a careful distinction between whether God is the same, Jesus is the same as God, or whether the Son is similar to the Father. And uh, that's how we get our phrase in the Nicene Creed of one being with the Father, literally of one substance with the Father. So they worked pretty hard at figuring these things out. But, you know, as important as those solemn bearded fellows were to the development of Christian doctrine, their world is not our world. We don't think of the world being made up of substance and accidents. We think of it being 
made up of protons, neutrons, and electrons. We know that our world is a planet in orbit around the sun. We know that the universe is a, a vast and almost limitless space, something that would not have been within their minds at all. So where does this leave us now? If we're not quite ready to approach the Trinity in the same way that they would have at Nicaea and Constantinople and Chalcedon. Well, we also approach for, we approach the mystery of God in our own way. We work it out, not only for ourselves, but in our communities of faith, and our understanding of what it means when we gather here and when we hear the Holy Scriptures read and when we come to this table. How do we understand our relationship to the created world that we see around us, and world meaning in the larger sense of the whole universe? Who is Jesus for you and for me? How does God take on our humanity? How do we live day by day? Who or what gives us strength and comfort? Who guides us in our daily life as Christians? In other words, what is the Trinity for you and for me? So, we do day by day exactly what the conciliar fathers did. We enter the mystery and seek faith and understanding in a way that works for each and every one of us. And, just as they did so many centuries ago, we walk this pilgrimage together my fellow people of God.